Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges, and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Hey, good morning, everybody. Scott Luton and special guest host Matt McGregor from Collier's here with you right here on Supply Chain Now. Welcome to today's show. Matt, how you doing? I'm doing wonderful. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, the weather this time of year in the state of Georgia uh, can't be beat. So enjoying that. But getting ready for a big episode here. Uh, Matt, with your help, we're going to be diving into the world of supply chain real estate, industrial markets, and really overall infrastructure. So big show lined up, right? That's right. Excited about it. It's a crazy time to be talking supply chain. I don't know about you, but every day I get home and there's a stack of boxes that uh, wasn't there before COVID. <laughs> we, we might just talk about supply chain uh, every hour here uh, at Supply Chain Now, but hey, we're loving it. We're big, big supply chain nerds, but we've got big guests here today. I'm really uh, looking forward to learning a ton and offering up some um, actionable insights to our global listeners. So with that said, Matt, I want to welcome in our two featured guests, uh, Nick Pell, President and Chief Investment Officer with Link Logistics, and his colleague, Brandon Page, Executive Vice President and Head of Leasing with Link Logistics. Hey, hey, Nick, Brandon, how are we doing? Excellent. Hey, guys. Well, we enjoyed the pre-show. Uh, both of y'all bring uh, quite a bit of character to the conversation, and I think we're going to uh, not only inform our listeners, but I, I've got a hankering that we're going to be entertaining them as well. So great to have you both here at Supply Chain Now. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having us. So uh, on that, so Matt and I, as we're kind of, uh, we're doing our homework uh, before this conversation, we've got a fun warm-up question we're going to pose to you uh, in just a second. Before we get there, let's, let's give you a chance to kind of uh, share with our listeners a little about yourself. So Nick, let's start with you. Real briefly, tell us about yourself. Well, uh, like Scott said, I'm I'm the president and uh, chief investment officer at Link uh, Logistics. I live uh, here in New York, New York, where I'm uh, sitting here today, and um, I'm, I'm married, two young kids, and um, uh, you know, spend my days working on uh, industrial real estate transactions and and working with our development team to uh, to deliver new buildings um, for for our customers across the country and. And um, we, we're busy as ever here, growing growing the business at Link. So, um, and, uh, and and for those that don't know, Link is is uh, about a 550 uh, million square foot uh, logistics portfolio uh, backed by Blackstone, and uh, we're about three. I think it's about 3,300 buildings now uh, across wow. the country. And um, uh, so, yeah, a lot of different types of, of real estate, all servicing a, a wide variety of different customers. Um, uh, in the logistics space. So Nick, that's quite an inventory, Nick. Uh, one quick follow-up question before I flip over to Brandon. Did you grow up in the New York area? Um, I grew up in Newport, Rhode Island. So not too far away. Um, a small little, little, uh, coastal town there and, uh, came here after college and, and, uh, did a few tours of duty duties in other cities, but ended up back here, uh, in the mid two thousands. So love it. Love it. Good stuff. Um, okay. So Brandon Page. Brandon, good afternoon. How you doing? I'm great. Thank you for asking. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm Brandon. I uh, oversee leasing nationally for Link and also work with um, our team that oversees our largest occupiers. Uh, I'm based out of Park City, Utah, which is my uh, little mountains in the background. <laughs> a homage to that. Um, married, have two kids, nine and six. Uh, grew up in Billings, Montana. And uh, I lived all over the country and worked for a number of good companies. This is actually my uh, my second stint with Blackstone, having been a part of their um, original Incor portfolio, and then came back in 2017 to to start uh, you know kick kick this off to what is now Link today, which is uh, you know, significantly bigger than, than when we started with just three of us back in 2017. <laughs> Man, it's, it sounds like y'all have been through a ton of growth, uh, <clears throat> and I can only imagine what your world is like uh, here uh, in this re re uh, in the current environment. And we're going to touch on a lot of that. Uh, we're going to share a lot of what your your observations and your experiences and your expertise with our listeners. But before we do, Matt, I love this, uh, this question uh, that we're going to uh, have a lot of fun with, with all three of y'all, as a matter of fact, because I remember my first car 
And I remember I could probably write about three books uh, about what that car experienced, but we're going to have to save that for a later episode. But Nick, uh, you're going to go first. You're going to be our Otis Nixon, maybe uh, famous Atlanta Braves leadoff hitter. Uh, and let us know what was the first car that you purchased? So this, this is a little embarrassing, but my, uh, my, the first car I ever purchased was uh, I just moved out to Los Angeles uh, from New York. Uh, I was, I was pretty young and, and uh, there's an old adage that you you dress for the job that you want, not the job that you have. Well, in Los Angeles, they wear vans and T-shirts. So I think you drive the car for the job that you want, not the one you have. And so I went and got a used 2000 uh, BMW 740i, right, which was a kind of a nice car for right. a, a young age. And uh, I lived in a very tiny, terrible apartment, but I had a very nice car that I drove. To, and I was working at a movie studio at the time, so it felt appropriate. Um, it ended up being a lemon, and, and I sold it shortly thereafter. But that was my <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I love it, man. I, could, I feel like there's so many stories there, but uh, we'll save those for a later time. Uh, Brandon, same question. First car you purchased. Yeah, it was basically the opposite of Nick. I uh, <laughs> I lived in New York City out of, out of college and was there for a couple of years. And um, had moved back and um, was looking at my MBA or going to like figure out where I was going to do with my life and living with my in-laws. Uh, and I bought a used uh, Jetta. We named him Jimmy the Jetta. And I'm 6'4". I'm barely fit in this thing to begin with. And <laughs> we're driving along and the four banger was just screaming and we're going like 50 miles an hour. So it was not, uh, it was not the 7 Series Beamer, but it got me from point A. Nice. Nice. A tale of two cities there, a little bit, Matt. Uh, thank you, Brandon and Nick. And Matt, same question. First car you purchased. Absolutely. Well, I'm a child of the 80s, muscle cars. Uh, that was that was my uh, um, introduction to the cars. It was a 77 Monte Carlo white, uh, diamond tuck interior, swivel buckets, Hertz shift kit, 307 four barrel. Uh, got after it a little too much and blew the engine about eight months later. <laughs> Man, I'm not sure what you just described. It could have been a space shuttle for all I knew about, <laughs> know about automotives, but uh, uh, undoubtedly some stories there. Um, all right. And by the way, folks, I'm part of big, big nerd here, but I had a Honda Civic. A four-door Honda Civic was my first car. I got about 372 miles to the gallon and it worked really well. So, um, okay. So, Matt... We got to get to work here. We got we got a couple of brilliant minds uh, informed what's going on, um, you know, making deals, uh, helping to power the global supply chain to do what it does. Right. Um, where are we starting with Nick and Brandon? Let's dive into today's conversation, gentlemen. I'm going to kick it off with you, Brandon. The industrial growth over the last 24 months in the U.S. Um, has been enormous. What has Link seen uh, related related with overall industrial growth in the U.S. markets? You know, I think what's most fascinating to me about the last couple of years, particularly 2021, is just the broad-based demand. It was every market, every size range, every sub-market, uh, you know, just had you know, a relentless demand. And, and we've certainly seen it flow through the absorption numbers. And if you look at like specific markets, SoCal has been in a league of its own entirely. I mean, 110% year-over-year rent growth just in the last 12 months. You know, 75% in the IE East, um, you know, and then you get more to like South Florida, which is in the 20% range, uh, Seattle, Matt, you're close to home there. Um, you know, New York, New Jersey at 18%. So, and even if you look like the low end of the spectrum out of the top 50 markets, there's only one, you know, like there's like six that are below 10% and only one that's, you know, like in the low single digits. So uh, really remarkable broad-based growth and you know, we've certainly seen that flow through from, you know, really from an industry standpoint, through occupancy, through through this, you know, consistent rent growth across the board. It's been, um, you know, really a fantastic couple of years for, for the industrial market. Those are just insane numbers and facts, uh, Brandon. Um, I know what the tightest market is probably the Inland Empire, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think there's like 0.3%, which, you know, it's like a couple buildings. Uh, in, in a you know a billion plus square foot market, so yeah, it's uh, wow. It's just nothing, nothing available, and you know there's still you know there's a fair amount of supply coming, but that market um, above others has seen so much you know pre leasing, and you know I think we, like we look back at the deals that we we signed you know mid 2020, and we were high fiving at what we thought were all time highs, and those rents today are 100 to 150 percent higher, um, and there's there's really no 
no slowing down the demand that we're seeing roll through that market. It's it's uh, it's always been the premier market, and that has not changed at, at all, despite the fact that rents are now pushing two dollars uh, monthly. That is just insane with that kind of growth. You know, I, Nick, anything on that? And specifically, when you're talking about rent growth like that, how are tenants taking that? And you know, how how are you guys explaining that kind of rent growth? Yeah, look, it's it's really there's just not enough space is another way to think about it. I mean, and it's overwhelmed by the demand that Brandon described, and, and it's that broad demand across the country. Um, and, you know, uh, landlords like us are scrambling, trying to service our customers needs and and they want space. They need space. They're pursuing new business. They're growing. And, you know, it's these are tough conversations. Right. I think the most important thing for a lot of these customers is just making sure they can get you know, so they can secure space to meet the demands of their business. And so, um, you know, not that rent isn't a concern because it is for for all customers, but, um, you know, I think just the lack of space that's available is, is, um, is a major issue for them. And they're also focused on all the other rising costs in their, in their, um, in their, in their, in their, in their overhead, which is and the number one issue for probably every company in America, which is labor and access to, to, to labor, um, to run their, their, to run their businesses. And so, um, you know, we tremendous. And, and I think when you really look like at all the markets, um, you know, pretty much everyone has, has outperformed, um, the inflation numbers too. So we're actually, um, you know, we're growing, uh, rents at, at a pace that's outpacing inflation, which, which I think is a really good sign for our business and, and, um, you know, this asset class, as you think about mm. it from a real estate standpoint, going into an inflationary environment, which we're, we're most definitely in at this point. That's a great point, Nick. And that kind of rolls me to my next question. And you touched on labor. Labor certainly has been uh, an impact of uh, you know, companies assessing whether they can nearshore or onshore. So what impacts is link scene related with geopolitical changes and around nearshoring um, and onshoring and an exit out of China. Are you guys seeing more deals here uh, that are transferring from other markets, including China, that uh, is bringing some manufacturing home? We're we're watching it closely like everybody is. And I think there's been several high profile examples of this announced across the country. Uh, Industries consolidated around uh, semiconductors, things that are of national interest, items and goods that um, there's a benefit to being closer to the end customer where, um, you know, the customer's input, um, you know, can more easily get into the goods and the production um, plan. The reality is these are large scale investments that take multi years to, to develop and plan. And so we've seen certainly announcements around these, some of the electric vehicles and, and battery plants as well. Um, you know, the Sun Belt obviously winning a lot of these um, announcements, but but not all that way. I mean, there's there's some in, in you know, the Rust Belt Midwestern, Mark, lower Midwest markets too. So, you know, I think it's, we're all watching it closely. Um, you know, we're thinking about the impacts and downstream impacts to our business around it. They do tend to be in, um, in areas where land's a little cheaper, you know, you can build a huge plant and then you know, we saw that with the auto facilities down in the southeast uh, with, with BMW and, and Mercedes and the like. But, you know, we're looking at Austin and Phoenix where these big, big uh, announcements had been made. And, and we're seeing, you know, just tremendous growth and trickle down from this um, investment that we expect um, just in those two markets, as an example. So that's a great point um, with, you know, with these firms really studying um, how to how that would impact them to onshore these manufacturers when you guys look at doing development i'm just curious you touched on labor are you guys running those labor analytics and and are you communicating to potential users uh how those labor analytics look on potential developments we are i mean we're evaluated on the front end when we get into a a process where we're purchasing a piece of land and, and and beginning an entitlement process or or construction of a building and then you know as we get closer to the leasing um, of the space, um, you know, that's part of our value proposition is we are building a tremendous database of information about our buildings and how the buildings fit into all the different, you know, key metrics that customers are looking for, you know, labor, proximity to transportation nodes, um, you know, rooftops, to the extent, you know, you're going to be doing distribution, um, but, but obviously roof labor as well. So, 
you know, the beauty of onshoring and all these huge investments are, are these are jobs, right? And so for our business, That's we're right. supplying, we're storing product to, to supply things for local economies. And so as these jobs come into um, some of these markets, that's just more goods and services that need to be provided and you need a place to do that. And so that's that's hopefully the stuff that we're doing with our development in Austin. We're the largest landlord in Austin from an industrial standpoint, and we're the largest developer. I think we have about 5 million feet on the ground there and we've got about 4 million feet under development. So, um, and it's, it's not a very big institutional um, stock. There's probably 60 million feet in, in the whole market. So. Um, you know, it's a market we really like. It's small, but um, it's not a regional distribution market, but it's a, it's got really great demographics and people and jobs are moving there. So that's great. I know that market's on fire and congratulations on your success there. Uh, Brandon, you touched earlier on some amazing rent growth numbers. Um, we, we know what has happened, uh, you know, over the last two or three years, you know, uh, unbelievable rent growth, as you've pointed out. What are your, you know, wh when is this going to stop and, or is it going to stop? And what are your realistic estimations of rent growth kind of in the top 10 U.S. markets overall over the next 24 months? Yeah. Do you remember when we used to have those conversations about what inning we're in? This was like five years ago. Uh, I think we're in the middle of like the longest game ever that uh, now, we're, now we're like watching it in hyperspeed and getting like five years in, in one. Um, you know, I, I think like, look, right. we look at obviously the demand side and the supply side. So if you look at like just this last quarter, you know, 73% of all available space that was available in the whole country was leased in the first quarter. So like leasing absorption nationally has, has held consistent. I think like I look back at you know, our portfolio a year, year and a half ago and we were, you know, low to mid nineties, you know, everybody's up to 98%. So you're still seeing the same leasing volume, which means there's no space. Like effectively everything is leased up. Um, I think that's uh, that's certainly telling for the balance of this year. Um, you know, on the supply side, there's definitely a wave of construction that's coming in a lot of markets. Uh, you know, markets lower barrier, you know, lower barrier venture markets like Phoenix, Vegas, Indianapolis, and Dallas have just a massive amount that's coming. Now, when it comes relative to demand, as long as the demand side there, you're seeing more pre-leasing than you know than than historical averages. So, you know, to now it seems like it's in check. You know, if we see the consumer start to spend a little bit less if we see, you know, people that are taking a break or not with the uncertainty just generally going on in the world. Do they do they pause? Does that create some sort of a gap on the demand side? But I'll tell you what, just for the balance of this year, it's hard to find a market that's got any sort of, you know, balance. It's all completely imbalanced to the landlord at this moment. That is just crazy after the the rent growth that you were talking about to, to you know, to predict that, you know, we're going to continue to see that. Do you see by the end of two or three years that, that you know, is it going to get back to that normal, say, 3% you know, you know, type of bumps? Or is, it, is there so much demand that you just can't predict when we're going to see a normal? I, I think inflation is an interesting factor in that, too. So, like, you know, historically, we go back to annual bumps were just CPI. And, you know, then all of a sudden, be, you know, we'd sign a lease two years ago, and now we're 30% below market. So, You've got the actual rent component, as Nick mentioned, that's outpacing inflation. But then you layer inflation on top of that. It's hard for me to believe that we're going to go back to a, a standard 3% annual bump. Markets go up 3%. Um, but again, like supply and demand is a fickle, simple concept that, uh, you know, with bottom line is that if there's space sitting available for a nine to 12 month period for a merchant developer, they're going to start to figure out a way to monetize that, whether that's splitting it up or dropping their lease rate that then, in, you know, makes other buildings that are competitive. So um, I, I don't see it again for this year. You know, we've obviously got a lot going on with the economy and potential slowdown and just the, the you know, change in potential, um, you know, cash that people have to spend on, on goods that that's somewhat of a gray area in the future. I mean, we've all been saying for 18 months because nobody can really see further beyond that, but it is still hard to believe sitting here today that, that there's something out there barring like a, you know, a big, black swan event that that changes the demand uh, for consumption of goods and you just then you layer on e-commerce and the, the the tailwinds that this industry has um, that's still trying to catch up from uh, you know from the covid um, you know screw up it's it's certainly opportunity that's right and brandon i know i'm seeing a lot of landlords across the country favoring shorter term deals and, and as opposed to 10-year deals maybe doing five-year deals uh, just because 
of that inflation that you touched on and that kind of rent growth. Obviously, you're not going to contract, uh, you know, 10 or 15 percent uh, annual bumps. Um, are you guys more motivated to shorten those terms a little bit? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, there, there used to be a discount for longer term and a premium for shorter. And I think you've seen the inverse in that. Um, mm -hmm. There's absolutely a premium for locking in rates for an extended period of time. Um, I, you know, again, there's there are certain assets where you, you're happy with the term. But at the end of the day, like, you know, we want market rents. We want to have market rents in our buildings. We're willing to take the risk that market is going to continue to rise. Um, so by nature, for high quality, infill, well-located, high demand buildings, we are going to want to try to get close to market on a regular basis possible, which leads us to, to doing short term deals. And Nick, talk to us a little bit about how that rent growth is impacting the capital markets. We've obviously got some other things going on now with with interest rates, inflation, but talk to us about the U.S. kind of top 10 markets and, and how you guys are dealing with that rent growth and, and under, other, underwriting and you know, where are we going with this? What's the temperature out there? We're, we're constantly in the capital markets. And the, one, the only thing I can say conclusively across the board is it was really challenging underwriting for everyone, whether you were buying, selling, uh, whether you were us or our competitors and you know, keeping up with the rate of change for these rents across the country. Uh, and it was most pronounced in, in the highest growth markets um, has been a challenge. I mean, I'm not sure anyone saw this coming. And, and um, you know, we were very active acquirers. We bought about $16 billion of industrial last year. But, um, you know, the, the the rank growth that we've seen on the stuff that we bought is, is um, far outpaced our expectations. And so, you know, I think, um, you know, we continue to be really focused on what's going on in our portfolio. We have a lot of data points and a lot of leases. I think we've got um, about 9,000 leases across the country, maybe a little bit more at this point. And, and so we're constantly looking about what we're seeing in our own portfolio and, and translating that back into our view of the capital markets. Um, but again, it's been a challenge for all of us to keep up with it. I, I will say that, um, you know, people have started to be a lot more aggressive because, uh, you know, they realized that, um, you know, we were all a little bit too conservative, um, you know, as this growth um, cycle happened. And um, so people, you know, at the start of the year have been very aggressive in capital markets in, in, in forecasting growth, both rank curves, starting rents, um, you know, picking off the last sort of rumor deal that's happening and, and using that in, in, in a model and, and so forth. And so, you know, I think that that dynamic continues to play out. Um, certainly the gateway markets, um, you know, Seattle, Northern California, Southern California, New York, New Jersey, and South Florida, um, you continue to see just this really outsized growth. But it's a phenomenon that, that happened in underwriting across the country. Um, so, um, and then, you know, you mentioned the interest rate environment. You know, it's a, you know, I think over the last 45 to 60 days where we've seen base rates and, and spreads um, both move against, um, you know, uh, us, it's, um, I think everyone's still digesting what that means for returns. And, um, you know, as we've just laid out, there doesn't seem to be a slowing up on the demand. We all have very good visibility on the supply in all these markets, given how, how much longer and more difficult the development process is really across the country now. So you end up having much greater supply visibility. Um, and so with, with sort of an insatiable amount of demand, um, I think that supports our, our bullish view on rents that that Brandon described. But um, and so that stays as an input as you think about the market, and then it's really just digesting the, the higher borrowing costs if you're a levered star. So I, I think you said it uh, you perfectly. You got that aggression out there, you know, wanting to be aggressive to be able to acquire some stuff, but you got this, you know, very analytical pause to to digest these new um, challenges out there. What are your predictions kind of over the next 24 months, um, either one of you related with maybe, you know, right into it, you know, where are we going with cap rates? Do you see interest rates um, uh, topping out? Uh, you know, kind of what are your predictions based on on your knowledge of, of what's going on out there? I think interest rates, I mean, they're going up. I mean, the the, the Fed said they're going up. And, and I think the hard part at this moment uh, is that, spreads have also widened this so all on borrowing costs are getting double hit right now and so at this moment in time i think 
um, again, levered buyers are struggling with how to how to price deals and what kind of cushion. And I think we're all looking for some a little bit more normalized financing markets and, and a little relief from from our lending partners out there. Um, even at, at at higher all in borrowing costs, where we can at least know the world is. Um, so I, I think that said, um, you know, it's the the rent growth dynamics and you know the secular trends still make it a very attractive environment so there is a ton of equity capital stacked up to invest in the space um being able to um you know to to have pricing power on your buildings that outpaces inflation is a relatively attractive um you know asset class um and so i think it'll continue to attract uh capital as it has over the last several years disproportionately i think and um and so at some point, I do think, um, it, you know, like, you know, what ends up happening is sort of returns come down, right? If your borrowing costs go up and right. there's a lot of equity there, your returns come down. Um, and so function of how much, how much um, rent growth sort of, you know, um, ultimately, you know, yields in terms of returns. But um, I don't know. I mean, it's... Uh, it's uh, it's exciting times out there, I will say. Um, so <laughs> every new data point is 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 very interesting. So um, we're watching it closely. So we got to ask you a question, Nick, that we were talking pre-show. Is industrial still the darling then? Look, I think I, I think it is. I mean, I think we have a, a lot of very positive fundamentals. Um, we have uh, you know customers that have. Are, are pressed to, to retain more inventory and buffer themselves from supply chain shocks, as, as we've all witnessed. We've got the onshoring we talked about. Um, we have the e-commerce trend, which continues. Um, we have real barriers to supply, uh, in, in particular in the most infill locations, the densest uh, uh, pockets of these major cities in the U.S., where um, you know entitlements continue to be more and more challenging every day. Yet customers are demanding this value proposition from, uh, you know, the folks that they uh, order goods from um, to get goods to them quickly and um, in, in massive quantities. So, you know, it's, um, I do think there's a ton of, um, of fundamentals that have real legs here and it, it continues to be one of Blackstone's highest conviction investment themes. Um, and we're just dealing with the noise of interest rates and, and um, uh, you know, figuring out some of these supply and supply chain issues and the impact of timing on, on building and the, and the development cycle. But, um, you know, we're still really happy with our portfolio and, and very convicted on the space. So. So I'm writing it down still the darling. So <laughs> thank you there, Nick. I appreciate that. Um, okay. So I'm, I'm, we're going to change gears a little bit here. I, I really, you know, real estate isn't my thing, right? So I'm learning a ton here from Nick and Brandon and Matt. It's fascinating. It's clearly a fascinating time to be a guru in the real estate and infrastructure uh, business. But quick aside, Brandon, you mentioned the baseball analogy. And if y'all can't tell, I'm a big Atlanta Braves fan. No one saw the World Series thing coming last year, and it just it blew us away. Are th all three of y'all, and 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 we'll stick with Nick for a second. Are you a baseball fan? Who's your team? I I, I grew up a Red Sox fan, um, and I'm raising some Yankees fans here, so you can imagine what goes on in my house. But uh, I didn't play baseball as a lacrosse, but I do like the sport, and 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 my son seems to really like it. So love it. I love that. Uh, a really fun rivalry there, of course. Um, okay, Brandon, same question. Are you a baseball fan? It's back, and thankfully, are you you a fan? Who's your team? Yeah, absolutely. I actually uh, played baseball through college, so spent a lot of my youth and uh, you know on the baseball field. So, hundred percent. I uh, I grew up a Mariner fan with the Ken Griffey age and Jay Buhner. Uh, really been tough to be a Mariner fan for the last I don't know twenty years. Um, so it's like when I lived in New York, we kind of picked up the Yankees, went to a ton of games, and so I still uh, definitely root for the Yankees. Love it. Uh, of course, uh, the kid Griffey Jr. won the sweetest swings in all of baseball. And Buner had an incredible arm. He hit a bunch of home runs, but he had an arm from uh, right field, I believe, uh, Brandon. And hopefully yeah. Seattle will be back. There's, those are some really good teams uh, back in the 90s and 2000s. Um, okay, Matt, final question. You a baseball fan? Who's your team? I am. Well, if I'm a baseball fan, it's Seattle Mariners, uh, but uh, I'm definitely a football guy. Go Hawks. 
Okay. <laughs> All right. Good stuff. We're, hey, you know, really, I'm just glad baseball's back. We need that departure with all, all that's going on in the world right now. Um, and, and regardless, we'll see what happens with uh, the Mariners and the Red Sox um, and your the Yankees for your son there, Nick, and, of course, the Braves. Um, but I want to shift gears here. Uh, infrastructure has, you know, there's, there's been a ton of cliches in the recent years. We've heard a lot about infrastructure, whether you're, if you're in industry, of course, because it, it is what, uh, big part of supply chain or on the, on the, uh, age, uh, the, um, policy side, the governmental side, you know, we know big bills are been working their way through our government. Um, but I want to talk about it mainly from a spec building and construction and supply chain point of view. Uh, and, and Nick, I want to stick with you here. You know, let's talk about development in the U.S. on the in, on the industrial side. I'm gonna give you a three part question, and you can pick wherever you want to start. Are we gonna continue? We talked a lot about demand in the first half of this interview. Are we gonna keep seeing demand outpace construction? Where's the hot markets, and what's what's link built? Uh, um, so first of all, what we're building. So we've got about uh, with approaching a 50 million square foot development portfolio. Um, uh, about $9 billion across the country. So very active, very ambitious development uh, effort here. Uh, I think it's over 150 different buildings going with half of them in Southern California, South Florida, uh, and the New York, New Jersey metro area. And, uh, you know, this really focused on these dense locations where it's difficult to deliver product. That's where our customers, you know, need, need the pro new product the most and where, you know, vacancy is the lowest. Um, it's also the most challenging place, you know, to build from an entitlement standpoint, you're normally tearing something down, dealing with environmental problems, um, mm. uh, you know, various challenges uh, to be able to, to deliver the new building. So um, and then on top of that, if that weren't difficult enough and the timelines weren't pushed out on all that, um, you know, obviously the hard cost inflation that we've seen across the country um, compounded with the, the land price appreciation um, as rents have grown, um, has caused the replacement costs to deliver new buildings, those markets and the gateway markets just to have, um, phenomenal growth over the last, um, you know, several years. And, um, you know, I mentioned earlier, the visibility into the supply pipeline, uh, has probably never been better for all of us in the marketplace, um, mm -hmm. just cause it takes longer to deliver, um, um, but it's also harder for everyone to forecast costs appropriately um, and to be able to deal with um, the timeline challenges. And so, you know, we, we did see some supply chain um, improvements uh, into the end of last year with, with steel prices coming down and, and some availability of some of the key resources in, in delivering our new builds. But, um, you know, you add what happened in geopolitically in, in, in the first quarter this year, and it, and it continues to, to skyrocket. And so, you know, we're seeing, um, you know, 20% uh, increases in costs uh, of, of hard costs over a six month period. Um, in, in, in some cases, different parts of the country varies a little bit, but again, very difficult to underwrite and predict and, and all just goes into um, what you're delivering at the end to our customers is, is uh, you know, it's a knife fight to get up a, a, a really high quality building in these in these in these great locations. So, um, you know, but we're committed to it and, and um, we've got a great team and and um, uh, it's, it's a growing team because it is a, to just roll up your sleeves and, and get into it kind of work. Um, mm. So. Well, and clearly you're, you're making big, bold moves, such as the the Austin uh, expansion you mentioned earlier in the interview. But it's not for the faint of heart, and there certainly there's no shortage of demand. Um, Brandon, I'll give you a chance to kind of weigh in on what you heard uh, Nick say uh, share there when it comes to hot markets, what Link's doing, and certainly demand outpacing construction. Yeah, I, I guess um, you know, I want to point out, too, like we're not building you know a, a brand-new building out in the next wheat field. You know, most of these are infill. There's a lot of entitlement that needs to be done. Um, I, I would say location is becoming, location has always been the most important attribute. It's now more and more important. And so finding key infill locations, we hear constantly from our customers that they will take a class A location over a class A building that's in an inferior location. So to the extent that we're buying land, buying development opportunities and, and key infill locations that are going to drive the most amount of demand, I would I sleep better at night knowing we have that strategy versus owning, like you said, the next the next cornfield out 
um, on the, you know, the exit that today doesn't exist. Mm. Uh, and Matt, we give you a chance to weigh in here on what uh, Brandon and Nick both said. Is it square with what some of the things you're seeing out there? Yeah, I'm just seeing, you know, continued demand. I will tell you, you know, representing large tenants can be extremely frustrating in markets with, you know, construction prices going up, uh, demand have been so high, rent doubling as, as Nick and Brandon have outlined and more. Um, and just in some markets you're going in, you just don't have an option. Uh, right now in Seattle, uh, if a tenant were in Seattle um, and they needed something over 250, 300,000 feet, there are no standing structures available. So, um, you know, it can be, it can be tough finding product and um, tough representing your clients uh, when you when you got this great deal and uh, and you don't have a building for it, it can be frustrating for sure. Mm. Um, okay. So I want to ask you all this question, Nick, I'm going to come back to you because we're going to get a little more specific around construction. And I'm going to ask you some things I know nothing about. Uh, real estate and construction is not my thing, Nick. Uh, uh, so shell building specs, what changes there? Uh, clear height, floor slab, dimensions, all that stuff. Tell us what's changing. Yeah, I, look, I think everything's on the table as 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 customers are evaluating what to do in the space and how to adapt to their end customers' needs, right? And so, what I mean by that specifically is, um, in particular, in these in these locations that are distribution facilities to service rooftops, um, the return on investment on automation is very very high. Uh, to increase throughput in a building uh, for these customers is 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 very important and when you start talking about the number one issue being labor um you know for for customers being able to increase throughput in the same building through automation is is a really key attribute right to be able to to deal with their mission to their customers and then um you know rising rents on them on a per square foot basis you know only only um, exasperates that right from their standpoint so um the implication of that, I think, is higher and higher cube in infill locations. So we are certainly considering those uh, on a speculative basis um, and then talking to customers about that um, for more customized buildings. Um, and then that has implications for, for the slab and floors and everything else. But but um, so that would be sort of one general theme. I think, um, you know, power and, and access to um, uh, you know, power capabilities is certainly, uh, you know, front of mind. And then I think it extends also to, as we think about, um, you know, keeping the facility um, to have maximum optionality around electronic vehicle charging and, and other, um, you know, other, other, you know, changes that we anticipate in the business, but are still in a relatively nascent stages from a use standpoint. Um, you know, when you're spending all this money and time delivering a state-of-the-art product, you want to make sure it's going to have staying power and have flexibility to adapt um, as the customers adapt their needs. So, um, you know, dialogue with our customers that in the effort that Brandon leads for us, um, you know, their their representation, you know, folks like Matt and, and, the, and the Collier's team and his colleagues across the country and and, um, you know, all, all of the agents. And, and so I think, um, you know, everyone's figuring this out real time, right? And, and the customers are too. And, and our goal is just to be able to be a resource to help them figure it out, help provide the solutions. And, um, you know, I think be able to deliver this space, um, space to them where, um, you know, where they want to be. Mm. For the long haul too. It's one of the things I'm, uh, you know, making, For the long haul. making yeah, sure. A lot of money. Yeah. They, they got to invest a lot of money. Brandon, I give you a chance to add to what we heard Nick share there. Yeah, I think you know, like the robotics piece is 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 interesting. I, you know, these are conversations that we have on a regular basis. You know, and like not in the sense that automation is going to take away from employees. It's really in productivity. You know, potentially a better you know work quality of life. So when you walk into these you know super high cube, dense automated facilities, you know that Amazon's got a ten plus year head start on. It's not less people um, that are that are being utilized in there. It's really more efficiency. So, like you're seeing, you know, massive lots for car parking to accommodate those people. And as even as Amazon steps back and looks at, you know, adding how do we add more automation to become more efficient? It's really not in place of people. So, you know, finding you know again the location ties to the the labor side and like where 
it's the number one factor when these guys do surveys is like where where can we put the building? First of all, that needs to be a big enough site. You got to be able to get it through entitlements, but you've got to have the parking for it and have the staff uh, and the labor to support the, the you know the, the increased output in the facility. Brandon, let me ask you a follow up question because I bet a lot of our listeners probably aren't um, uh, experts in the construction and um, um, the real estate side of things. When you say entitlements, because I've heard you reference that a couple times, what does that mean when it comes to construction? It's basically getting the city to allow the use that you want to, you know, to basically sign off on the development. A lot of times there's a change of use permit that requires them to actually change the zoning for a specific site to to build a warehouse building. And, and as we've seen, um, you know, some cities don't like it. Some cities don't want to have more cars and more trucks going through their neighborhood, which makes it a little bit more prohibitive where you could go, wow, that's a fantastic place and a, you know, super location for a warehouse facility and the cities won't allow you to do it. So it's kind of a combination yeah. of, you know, one, finding land that's big enough and two, a, a city and a jurisdiction that allow you to, to develop it. I, I appreciate you sharing that. I think, I think uh, everyone, uh, can really relate to that. And I think I saw it put in one Wall Street Journal article uh, that as consumers, all of us want that same day or next day delivery as long as it's being fulfilled by a center across, you know, in another town, right? But to meet that demand that all you're speaking, uh, that, you're, you're, that we're all speaking to and the expected service levels, that requires a lot of infrastructure that, that everyone here, the panel here is talking, uh, speaking to. So, um so Matt, I'll get you to weigh in here. I want to make sure um, you know Nick and Brandon both have been speaking to some of the some of the change and the innovations they're seeing when it comes to uh, construction plans. But Matt, anything else that you want to add when it comes to these ever changing uh, building specs? Yeah, certainly. I mean, as always, we're seeing buildings being uh, constructed with taller and taller uh, clear heights uh, for cubic storage capacity. Um, and certainly that requires a, you know, a better slab, uh, a thicker slab that can take more weight. So we're seeing those changes. Um, I think most of the, um, you know, technology that we're seeing is not improvements necessarily on the cell, but inside the box. Um, certainly Amazon, as mentioned, uh, has been an innovator and a leader in uh, that automation inside the shell, but I walked in just a simple distribution uh, building the other day with a local firm that there was a drone flying around uh, the building uh, taking inventory. Um, so we're we're seeing that we're seeing the um, you know, Google Glass the inventory glasses that are as you as you look at the inventory they're recording it and it, seeing things in in even simple uh, one-off companies uh, technology changing that. So I think it's important. To stay up on those trends, to be able to advise on on that with your clients, um, but we're seeing a lot in more. I would say more innovation inside the box, certainly than the box itself. Well, it's a great segue, uh, Brandon. I'll come back to you here when we talk about innovations related to efficiencies or technology, as as Matt mentions. What are some things you're seeing there, Brandon? You know, I'll go back to the robotics thing because I think that you know we've mentioned it a few times, but it's also the number one topic. Uh, I, I feel like we're seeing a new automation, you know, robotics company, you know, born every day. Um, you know, we at Link, we, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how we can leverage our economies of scale and our platform to help our customers. And, and, you know, part of that vision is to figure out what's the right group on the automation side to partner with. And, you know, take Amazon aside, but say you have a small micro fulfillment company that's trying to compete with Amazon, you know, they, they don't have the upfront capital to spend. So like, is there a way for us to ultimately finance some of that um, be a partner with them. There's, you know, there's a software component. There's the actual physical robot or, you know, robotic unit that's being, you know, used. So like there's, there's multiple, and I'm learning about different acronyms that I didn't know three months ago in a lot <laughs> right. of these discussions. Um, and, and it's, it's evolving daily, but you know, there's, this is definitely not something that's going to go away. Um, I, I do think there's a real need for it. And, and I think link, you know, we're, we're in a really unique position to, to partner with our customers and, and help them, and their business uh, by, you know, by figuring out a way to, to do this for them. Mm. Um, and, and Nick, I want to circle back to you when we talk about innovation and we talk about, uh, it sounds like to me, um, you know, Link is, is really closely aligned um, uh, in, in lockstep with your customers or what you need and then going to work to, to finding it and building it. What else would you add from an innovation standpoint, Nick? Yeah, thanks. I mean, look, we're, we're constantly trying to innovate new, um, uh, you know, new, deliveries for our for our customers in terms of um, you know just thinking 
from the ESG front, you know, we're delivering uh, all our all our almost 50 million feet will be lead, lead certified and, um, you know, delivering LED lighting to allow our customers to meet their own desires, the pressures they're under to, to um, you know, adhere to ESG standards. Um, we have a very ambitious, probably the largest uh, solar um, uh, installation program going across the country right now. We have a lot, a lot of rooftops out there, as I mentioned earlier. So, um, you know, just trying to take advantage of that, make a difference, you know, add some value, save some money for, for our customers um, and, uh, and hopefully change the world a little bit too. And um, so that's just one area, but, but all the technology stuff that Brandon mentioned, um, you know, these are fast moving, uh, you know, emerging companies that we're trying to stay ahead of being plugged into the Blackstone um, ecosystem and their growth business, life science business, private equity business, um, you know, just allows us to stay, you know, front and center in all these things for our customers as well. Outstanding because they're demanding it, right? As you're alluding to, and, and investors are demanding it. So, um, and uh, it doesn't make, make uh world for a better place. So I appreciate that, Nick. Um, fascinating. Uh, I feel like I've just put my finger on the pulse and, and, and you're just scraping the top of the iceberg here, Matt, with everything that's going on in, in the uh, industrial uh, rental space, right? That's right. There's a there's a ton of innovation going on, um, you know, both uh, inside and outside the box. And um, you know, one thing we didn't touch on it was it's interesting with the uh, you know with COVID changing the the work at home um, environment, and then we've touched on labor. You're you're seeing industrial companies, and I'm sure Link is included in this, um, changing the way office is structured. I'd say my whole career, industrial office was just kind of very cookie cutter. It wasn't. Uh, there wasn't a lot of bells and whistles to it, and now it's being created uh, in very in- innovative ways with uh, bringing in natural light and relights and open office and shared workspace, less private office, more collaborative workspaces, plug and play workspaces, so people can um, have a work life balance and work from home and plug into offices as opposed to, uh, you know, the old school dense uh, office build out. So we're seeing that um, change uh, inside the box as well. So it's just gotten harder and harder. Uh, so folks, if you're listening, you want to be a part of this industry. Remember, it's not for the faint of heart to, to, to get stuff done, uh, as Nick put it earlier. But uh, it is just fascinating. Um, so I want to do this uh, here as we come around the um, the final, final stretch here. I want to make sure our listeners know how to connect with Link Logistics and both of y'all. And Nick, I want to start with you. Uh, by the way, uh, if folks are visiting New York, Put you on spot here. What's one restaurant that they got if they can get in? They got to get in and and eat something good. Um, so there's so many great restaurants. So it depends on your palate. But what I my favorite fine dining restaurant I think would be uh, Marea on Central Park South. And then there's a more casual version of it called Osteria Marini in Soho, which is also equally good but more casual and accessible. And uh, so I highly recommend those if you like Italian food and. Uh, if you don't, uh, I really don't understand why, but uh, I guess there's some people that must not like Italian food. Um, Nick, I love it. Uh, and thank you for letting me put you on the spot there. So there are some great places to eat in New York City. Um, but how can folks uh, connect with you and Link? Um, so I think the easiest way is probably just on our website, linklogistics.com. Um, we're all up there and, and our regional contacts are all available. Um, we're both on LinkedIn as well. Um, so, you know, we're, we're available there and um, we're active, active posters as a company. Uh, and, uh, and both of us are on LinkedIn as well. So just that easy. And Brandon, I'll give you a chance at, uh, I've got to ask you a question. We didn't, I didn't close the loop with you on baseball. What position did you play, Brandon? I was a pitcher. Yeah. I, I played uh, at the university of Utah uh, all four years and have the uh, scar from the surgery to prove it. So what was your best pitch? Uh, it was a good run. I was, I, you know, I, slider was by far my my out pitch. Um, was a was pretty was a plus pitch for sure. Also, probably okay. helped lead to the heart surgery. <laughs> so, Brandon, we're going to invite you back, and, and maybe Nick too. We, we do a, a show every once in a while called Supply Chain Nerds Talk Sports, and it's all sports, you know, whether it's baseball, football, whatever. I bet you've got some stories there. But uh, regardless, Brandon, same place. Find you on social and and at the link webpage, right? Yep. Yeah. Through LinkedIn and through uh, linklogistics.com is the best, best way to get hold of us. Perfect. Great. Well, I very much appreciate y'all taking time out, out of your busy schedule. I can't imagine what the rest of your day looks like based on some of what we, uh, we heard here today. 
But we've been talking with Nick Pell, President and Chief Investment Officer with Link Logistics, and his colleague, Brandon Page, Executive Vice President and Head of Leasing. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Brandon. We look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, guys. Matt, man, holy cow. I, I just felt like I took a sneak peek into your world uh, and Nick's and Brandon's. And maybe I'm maybe my heart is very faint. <laughs> maybe it's not for me. There's a ton of stuff y'all have to work through to give global supply chain what they need from an infrastructure standpoint, huh? That's right. It's been a crazy couple of years, and I think we're in for a, a crazy couple more. I mean, you know, as you know, supply chain uh, has been the buzzword for the last couple of years, and certainly uh, just is getting more and more complicated, uh, but certainly fun. It's fun to learn how to uh, be innovative in it and, and find ways to improve it. And I think that's what companies like Link's, uh, Link and Collier's are doing. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, GSD, getting stuff done. Um, all okay. right. So let's talk about this. Up, <laughs> so maybe a nice version. Let's talk about this upcoming event that uh, we're going to be at. I'm looking forward to sitting down with a couple of the business leaders at, um, let's see here, the Collier's Logistics and Transportation Solutions Group Supply Chain Conference, right? May 11th through the 13th in beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. What is one thing you're looking forward to, Matt? I would definitely say the the networking uh, and the speakers all around, uh, you know, understanding the dynamics of the supply chain moving forward. Some hitting on some of those geopolitical issues, and understanding uh, how bringing manufacturing both uh, onshore here in the U.S. is, in addition, nearshoring in Mexico is is impacting. Uh, the industrial markets um, and supply chain. And I would say those are the biggest topics we'll be hitting there. We'll, it'll be a great conference. It will be with great food, a great backdrop and great networking uh, and a lot to be learned. Right. So big thanks to our friends at Collier's. A hey, big thanks to you uh, today, Matt McGregor, for taking time out of your schedules. We interviewed Nick and Brandon. Uh, how can folks connect with you, Matt? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Matt McGregor, um, or my team's uh, website industrial advisors that's also a podcast you can find industrial advisors on anywhere where you podcasts uh apple Podcasts, spotify google Podcasts, and all others wonderful not to be missed uh well matt a pleasure to collaborate with you we're looking forward to our upcoming episodes hey listeners hopefully you enjoyed today's episode and learned a ton as much as i did uh big thanks to our friends at link logistics again nick pell and brandon page big thanks to matt mcgregor and our friends at colliers for bringing this show here uh, to you, our listener, and hey, listeners, wherever you are, um, hopefully you got 17 pages of notes like I did from today's conversation. But Scott Luton and the Supply Chain Now team challenging you to do good, to give forward, and to be the change. And with that said, we'll see you next time right back here on Supply Chain Now. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. Check out all of our programming at SupplyChainNow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Supply Chain Now. Supply Chain Now.